Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett enters the world of Hollywood and sits down with TV and movie star, Robert Wool. Excuse me, what the hell's going on out here? Nick's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live, was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove, and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift, and uh, maybe you can find out where she's registered, maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pattern. Okay, let's get to And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, we're headed out to Hollywood. I'm going to sit down with an actor that's appeared in major motion pictures, TV series, and shared the screen with some of the most iconic actors in the industry. He also happens to be a huge baseball fan. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Wool. Robert, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, Brett. Uh, Out of all your buddies in Hollywood, colleagues, friends, who's the biggest baseball fan? And I'm not talking, I know you're a real baseball fan, but I'm not talking about that clown that comes out of the closet just for the playoffs, throws their hat on and gets on TV. I'm talking about the real guys that really live with their team and watch it from start to finish. Well, well, it's just fans. Uh, Brian Cranston's a big ba- Dodger fan. He's a big baseball fan. Um, I'm the biggest baseball fan of anybody I know. Uh, well, the most knowledgeable one, I, I, because I love baseball. I'm not just a fan of one team. Uh, I, I'm into the game within the game, and you know I'm friendly with. Uh, in fact, I'm friendly with uh, Jerry Depoto. Very good. I'm very for years. So um, I'm rooting for Seattle big time. The um, and you know and and I know I've been around. You know I knew Steinbrenner pretty well. I know Lon Trost. I, I knew the play. You know, especially when I was doing the Arliss show, I got to know got to know you know people like Barry Larkin, even Barry Bonds and Clemens. I'm friendly with. I'm tight with those guys. So I, I'm as far as the other guys who really know baseball. Billy Crystal knows baseball. Um, Rob Reiner knows baseball. Uh, I'm trying to think who really knows it. Uh, when, I, when I say knows it, I'm talking about like me talking to you. Right. We can talk the intricacies of the game. Right. Exactly. The game like not the, right. Not just the surface that yeah. any that anybody could acknowledge. Yeah. Right. The game within the game. Um, uh, who else? I'm sure other people will come to mind. Jerry Seinfeld's a big Met fan. I right. don't know how much beyond that. I mean, he's a baseball fan, but I don't know what he knows beyond the, the, the Mets, but he is a huge Met fan. Bill Maher is a, a big baseball fan. Jeez, uh, who else am I thinking about? I don't know. Somebody else will come to mind, I'm sure. All right, your childhood born in born in Union, New Jersey. I was born in uh, no, I was born in California, but I grew up in South Jersey. Okay. Um, what was Robert Wool like as a little kid? Oh boy, uh, I don't know. I was just, uh, I guess you know, I was actually born in Newark, New Jersey, but we moved to Union at a young age. My dad was a, um, a World War II vet, and uh, he went into the family business. When he got back, and he was a good athlete. My dad actually was a very good athlete. He actually had an audition, a tryout for the great Newark Bears team, uh, which was the Triple A team for the Yankees way back when. Uh, you know, Rizzuto came from there. I think Lazari came from there. 
uh, some other guys. So he taught me sports and especially like game within the game. And also he taught me about more importantly, about personalities in sports, about athletes and what they think like. You know, he got me off of this rah-rah stuff very at a very early age. He was talking about, he goes, professional athletes don't think like that. Uh, it, it was like a, um, when we did Bull Durham, I remember the first scene we'd shot was in a locker room. And it was, you know, it was a, in a locker room scene. And the assistant did, uh, director said, okay. And we had all the uh, coaches and the players here coming into the locker room. And this is a minor league in Durham. And they said, uh, okay, you just you just won the game. So everybody's really excited, really excited. So we all came in and said, yeah, 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 yeah. And Ron Shelton, the director, went, cut. He said, this is routine. You've been doing this every day since you're nine years old. And he goes, what you're thinking right now, and I knew exactly because my father told me what I was going to be thinking. He said, you know, where are we eating and where's the pussy? That's what you're thinking. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's accurate. It's totally accurate. It's like when I see these people, I just I did a huge post on Facebook yesterday when I saw these Met fans criticizing Buck Showalter uh, for losing the, the Met series. And I said, this is beyond absurd. I go, it's beyond. He goes, he didn't motivate him. I go, what's this with motivation? You think these guys, uh, after a hundred, these guys who have played every day of their life, make millions of dollars, they're veterans, they're going to wake up one day and say, you know, I'm not motivated today. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm not going to try as hard. I said, that's, you know, it's like they all have this idea that everything is a Hoosiers or a Rudy where a guy gives a speech in the locker room and one guy, remember this scene? One guy starts to clap. And then another right. right. And then, and then I go, I go, you can believe this fairy tale all you want. I go, but that's not how it works. Let me tell you. It's routine. These guys have, and I used to say that when we did the Arliss show, to I go, it's routine. You've been doing this every day of your life since probably the age of 11. You know, so, um, especially baseball, because it's daily. Uh, but uh, you know, I my dad taught me taught me baseball, taught me you know a, you know int- really good intricacies, uh, and taught me how athletes tend to think. And uh, and he was a really good athlete. So I grew up there. I was a baseball fan. I grew up being a Yankee fan. I was a I remember I grew up with Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were there. So I was a right fielder who batted left handed. So I was a Maris guy. And um, you know, but I always, and then I went, I was always a baseball fan. And I just, I, I, even though the Yankees, then the Yankees start to suck, I went down to school at the University of Houston, which had a good baseball team, but I sold beer in the Astrodome. So I used to go, you know, make a couple of bucks and watch the Astros play all the time. I remember seeing a rookie they had. You'll remember this guy. Probably, you talk about guys who didn't get a lot out of their talent. Do you remember Cesar Cedeno? Without a doubt. I'll tell you, you know what, you know what, you know how I first, because that's my generation, you know, that's when my, my dad was playing and, you know, 1980, especially is was when they had that big series between the Phillies and the, and the Astros that drop dead drag out series. And it was right around the time, which is, uh, I'm going to mention this. We're going to talk about the movies later, but I loved as a kid, the bad news bears. And I loved when they were in breaking training and they went to the Astrodome and Cesar Cedeno's in that scene. Hey, it's Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno. But as a kid, I had also grown up watching all those guys. So, oh, I remember Cesar Cedeno well. Cesar Cedeno might have gotten less out of his talent than anybody I ever saw in my life. 
This guy, when he first came up, they were comparing him to Willie Mays. He was that good. In fact, he's one of the few. He's got 500 stolen bases. People forget that. Uh, he was so talented. He also led the league in murders one year when he killed this girl down in, uh, I think it was the movie theater somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, but I used to go there and I used to see Bob Watson and the team and Larry Jerker and, oh boy. And, uh, and, and maybe one of the funniest guys I ever knew, I'm sure you know, Doug Raider. Doug Raider yes. was, was funny. Uh, and, uh, so I used to watch them. And, you know, the Astrodome was, as you know, was, it was a tough place to hit. Uh, I used to, and I used to see J.R. Richard. You know, J.R. Richard, you, pro- you probably faced J.R. Richard. Um, J.R. Richard was, no, he was a little, he was before you know, my time. You, yeah, he was a little ahead of me, but I hear the stories. Dad Dad likes to tell the stories because that's when they had J.R. Richard and Nolan Ryan. Yeah. A- and J.R. Richard's career, you know, there were a lot of problems. He, he went through a lot of trials and tribulations, and his career was cut short. But I'll tell you, the guys from that generation, when you mention J.R. Richards, their eyes light up. Because yeah. it's kind of, you know, everybody knows the Nolan Ryans, but – but the obscure name, like a J.R. Richards, but the guys that were there playing, it's almost like a Dick Allen. Yeah. You know, the guys yeah. that played against him, yeah. they say, you have no idea the talent this guy had. You know, and they compare him to like a Dwight Gooden. He was a little earlier yeah. than Gooden, but they, they compare him. He was that good. Yeah, he did have a lot of demons and uh, and problems, but, oh, man, I, you're exactly right. There was nobody more intimidating on the mound, including Ryan, uh, than, than J.R. J.R. was, oof, um, wow. Who was the most intimidating pitcher for you? Was it Ryan? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's funny because that's, that's something that's always talked about. Who's, you know, I always hear about Bob Gibson. You know, I wasn't around for Bob Gibson. I hear how intimidating he was. You know, my grandpa, my dad used to tell me stories and as a player, and this is when we talk about the, what's real and what's not real. I was never intimidated by anybody from a from a fear standpoint, like you're going to hit me. I used to laugh at people that try to buzz you inside. It's like what you you think that's going to really scare me off the plate. And it never did. It's like, no, I know you're probably going to go try to go with a breaking ball away next pitch. So it's almost I laugh at you when you throw at me. Now, if you hit me we and, and it was you hit me on purpose. Now, we might have a problem. But as far as being intimidated, that's the last thing I ever was. And I used to laugh at people. Oh, Roger Clemens, he's really intimidating. Roger Clemens hit me in in the head my second at bat, wow. the big leagues against him. Wow. And everything I had in my body, you know, I'm sitting there thinking it's my second day in the big leagues. Clemens hit me. I know he hit me on purpose. It didn't hurt. It was kind of a glancing blow, but I was... It was kind of scary. I'm laying in the dirt and I'm like, I got to go get him. But I, I'm, I've just got here. It's the second day. I can't go get Clemens in the big leagues, my second big league game. But that's that's kind of a big misnomer. I mean, guys don't get scared of you. It's like you're going to you're going to drill me. All right. We might have a problem if you're going to buzz me in. I looked at it this way, Robert. I looked at it as that's great because this is a really good pitcher and that's ball one. I'm ahead in the count. That's how I used to look to get my, uh-huh. get my tower buzz. So, but as far as guys that were just dominating, I, I have a simple answer, you know, cause as players, we get asked that all, who are the toughest pitchers? Well, I, I end it in one sentence. I go Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. And it's, it's that nineties Braves rotation that man, that's back before cell phones. And I used to go to the USA today. And, and this is no lie. Two weeks in advance. I knew we were going to Atlanta 
And I'd see who was pitching that day. And then I'd start counting every fifth day and try to get to, all right, who am I going to get in Atlanta? Just let me miss them one time. Let me get, uh, let me get whoever their four starter is one time. And it seemed like nine times out of 10, I'd count the days. It's like Tuesday, Maddox, Wednesday, Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. And it seemed like it was that all the time. But Randy was definitely tough. He was something that no one had ever seen before at that particular time. Randy Johnson, I'm talking about, because he was so tall. I played with him and I played against him, but his reach was so long. His reach was so much farther than everybody else's. It was on you. And, and the thing about Randy is early in his career, he was more of a thrower, but by the mid nineties, I mean, Randy was not only throwing a hundred with, with a nasty slider, but he was pitching. I mean, he was starting to throw me front door two seam fastballs like Tom Glavin would, you know, who was pinpoint with his control. So now all of a sudden I got a guy throwing 100 and has control. That, as far as intimidating at bat, was probably one of the biggest I had was Randy Johnson. I have a question. How much bigger was the plate when Maddox and, and Glavin and Smoltz threw? Because my buddy Kenny Lawton says, look, Maddox was tough, but he got two inches more on every side of the plate. That that's that is a great question. Another thing I thought I, I thought about I try to think about it logically, and and I would put myself in an umpire's situation. Now back then, especially the the decade of the nineties, you think, okay, Maddox and Maddox and Glavin, they they were they were famous for getting two three inches off the plate. And I thought, if I'm an umpire, wouldn't I be sick of hearing that the league and the fans and Everybody, all they talk about is how we cater to Maddox and and Glavin. And I'm thinking they'd want to bear down and really not give them that call because they don't want to be known as as lack of integrity guys. So I really don't think it was because it was Maddox. They just gave it to him. I think it's because of the skill level he possessed. If you look at Glavin and I, and I used to try to figure it out. I'm like, why do they keep calling that pitch off the plate? And it's always the change up. He set up on the left side. So if I'm the hitter, he set up all the way on the left side of the rubber. And I I can't show you (laughs) because there's no video right now. But the way his arm angle would come through, I I think it was almost deceiving to the umpire, if that makes sense. They didn't call it on purpose. It was the deception was so good. And Maddox, probably the greatest technical pitcher I ever faced start to finish and I'm talking about body of work I'm talking about getting in the box about great with Greg Maddox if he's having an off day he's off by an inch whereas a normal pitcher if they're off they might call for a fastball away and miss up and in on a day where they don't have it Maddox I felt like when he was off he was he was he was the most robotic I knew what I was getting from him and still had a tough time hitting it as anyone I've ever seen. Maddox was just so his ball moved just so much better than everybody else's. And it was late and it was deceiving. He could almost tell you, I'm going to throw you a two seam fastball away. And what you're going to do is your eyes are going to read it out of my hand as a ball. But before your eyes, it is going to come back onto the outside corner of the plate. They're going to call it a strike. And uh, it, it was amazing how he could the consistency that I faced him with. But I, to this day, I just don't think the umpires went into the game going, oh, I'm going to give them two inches off. No, the plate. I think they were so good and so talented and so uh, pinpoint with their control that they, they kind of just deceived the umpire into calling those strikes. You know, I got to, I talked to Greg a couple of times and I once asked him, I said, you know, you know, I got a rookie card of yours. And I looked on the back and I saw the minor league numbers and Greg said, pretty harsh shit, aren't they? 
I go, well, I wouldn't call that, but what made the difference? I mean, because in the minors, he was not, I mean, you would have never guessed. He goes, change up. Change up made all the difference to him. You had to learn how to do it. Which, which is interesting, but he told me that. Because he Maddox is, to me, as, as Charlie Steiner, the broadcaster, said, Maddox was like a savant when he came to pitching. He said he was like a savant. He got, I, I agree. You know the other pitcher I loved? And I loved a lot of guys. You know, growing up when I was a kid, I used to love to watch. I loved watching Marischal and Teons. They were the most fun to watch because of just all the movement. But the guy I really loved because of the competitor in him, and I'm sure you faced him, was Jack Morris. I, I, I think Jack Morris is, oh, is criminally underrated almost among, uh, not among the players, but when I hear all these, you know, stat guys and all these cybermetric geeks saying, you know, uh, I asked Clemens, I go, what was your take on Morris? And he looked at me like, Jack Morris? He was one of the dominant pitchers in our game. He, he goes, he, he didn't want to face Morris, you know? So uh, what was your reaction to him? Jack was definitely, I think you described it uh, perfect. I mean, a lot of guys in this game, and I, and I played against so many, and you're right. When it comes down to it, the players, are. if you want to know the true accuracy of what people think of this player, how good he was, go ask the players. Because yeah. they're the ones that are going to be honest with you, and you're going to get the true uh, temperature of how any player that you mention. Uh, so, so when it comes to awards and, and you're, you're right, people on the outside writing, telling us how good they are. If you want to really know, get a hold of a player, a current player in that clubhouse and ask him. And that's where you're going to get the, the best translation of, of his true value. Jack Morris was a, was a gamer. You didn't want to face him, especially in a big game. I got the the chance to play with Jack. He came to us uh, for spring training, ended up retiring with the Reds at the end of his career. But uh, definitely in his day, one of the best, one of the best big game pitchers. And it was cool recently uh, to see him finally get acknowledged in the Hall of Fame because yeah. I know the guys that played with and against him for his entire career. That That's what comes to – that's the most uh, – the most heard answer I hear is Jack Morris, big game pitcher. You want him on the mound. Yeah. You know, he started three American League All-Star. He was the All-Star starter for three All-Star games, which I think is, is either best or second best. And I said, now, what does that tell you? When the manager of the All-Star team can pick any pitcher he wants to, and he goes to Morris three times. What yeah. does that tell you? Uh, I'd be interested. What, you know, what if I went around – if I went around the diamond with you, you know, well, I want to talk about managers too, but if I went around the diamond because your dad was a manager, your brother's a manager, uh, I got to be friendly with, with, with you know, I've always, I'm always talking with managers, always. I've talked with my favorite, you know, whether it's Tommy, Sparky, uh, Tori, I, I love talking to all of them. And I've always asked them the question, <clears throat> what percentage of your job duties are actually between the lines once the game starts. And the answer I invariably get back, Brett, is 20%, around 20, sometimes they say 25%. People don't realize that a manager's job duties are, are so, in, you know, the fans only see what's between the lines. That's all they see. Right. They don't see that he's got to start out with 40 guys in spring training. Now it's more. And you're going to have these guys for the next six months living together, breathing together. You've got guys who don't speak English. You've got guys 
who are going through marriages for the first time, divorces for the first time, who are going through parents, losing parents, becoming kids. You've got veterans who are coming at the end of a contract and being pushed by rookies who are trying to take their jobs. And you've got to keep, and you're going to have losing streaks, winning streaks, and you've got to keep everything moving in the same direction. He says that's what it's about. You can't get too much. Because, and, and, it's, and also dealing with the media now, which is worse than anything. But I was always fascinated to hear them all talk about that. Uh, I mean, what's been, I mean, I'm sure your dad and Aaron talk about the same thing. Well, you know, I, I talked to dad always said he had a few things to do. You got to have that. You've got to manage the, the relationship between manager and general manager. Cause you're going to have a guy, you're going to have a guy up in the booth that's put together this roster and he's going to have his set of ideals and his opinions. You got the manager on the field and now it's changed a little bit, as you know, with the analytical data and, and, there's been some power taken away from the managers in in my day for the most part you know I played for Lou Pinella I played for Bobby Cox I played for Bruce Bochy and it was pretty much 100% what they were doing was what they were doing I think it should go back to that I think you have the best feeling when you're in the dugout you've got your hand on the uh, finger on the pulse of that team and that personnel more importantly I think what you hit on is the most important is it's all about managing people And, and it's about checking egos. It's about, it's about dealing with egos. It's about giving one guy a hug and kicking another guy in the ass to get the same result. So I don't think it's any different than running a large company when, Hey, that guy right there, he's a pain in the ass, but he's really good at what he does. And I have to get him in a frame of mind to be at his best because when he is, he adds to our bottom line. I think that what, that's what you have to do as a manager. And Aaron, uh, we're completely different. We're, we're very like-minded when it comes to the, t- comes to the game. We love to debate uh, the game, the intricacies of the game. But we are different. He's more like my dad, and I'm more of a laid-back listen once you get to the game, you do everything you can as a manager to put those the, your players in the best position you possibly can to win this game. But once that national anthem's over, it's kind of out of your hands. Yes, you can make a change here. You can make the right pitching change. But nowadays, it's kind of lefty-righty. You could, you could take your computer out and run a big league game these days. So I think it's all about managing that, and, and I try to – try to talk to Aaron especially because of that press in New York and it is so tough I mean you could win a hundred games and you lose that hundred and first and you stink and they want you they want you killed (laughs) it's just the way it's the nature of the beast in New York I love that about New York though I love the fans because the fans appreciate great play and they'll let you know when you're not playing well so I that's the conversations I have with my brother a lot is hey Aaron the bottom line is you've done a hell of a job in the years you've been there. You won 100 games three or four years in a row. You're going to the playoffs again. You All you can do is take the personnel that you have access to, put them in the best position you think they can to succeed. Once that game starts, players win and players lose games. There's not too many times, Robert, in my career where I was sitting around after a game talking to the you know, my teammates and say, hey, Skip really blew that game today. Doesn't happen. Players, we win, we win games and we lose games. And a, and a manager's just there to steer the ship. I was, th- I wrote, like I said, I had all these Mets fans that were going crazy over Showalter. And I said, okay, point, do me a favor, point to one in-game move that he made during the series that affected anything. I go, give me one. I go, do you think, oh, we can't win the big one? I go, you know, 
I got to tell you, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Coach K couldn't win the big one, that Tom Landry couldn't win the big one, Dean Smith couldn't win the big one, Andy Reid couldn't win the big one, until they do. Let me tell you this. I go back to what Sparky Anderson told me one time. He says, when it comes to Matt, Sparky, Bobby, Bobby, when it comes to managing, it's all about who's got the horses. Let me tell you, I'll go to a Little League game, and I'll tell the coach on the other side, you take the first 10 kids, and I'll take the second 10 kids. You know what's going to happen? He's going to beat me 50 to nothing. And I got 25 years managing and two world championships. And that guy's selling aluminum siding during the week. <laughs> he says, who's got the horses? Boy, do I, your brother got dealt a tough blow today with no no DJ and no um, the reliever, Scott Elfin, whatever. Efros, yeah. I, uh, I got it. I talked to him, uh, you know, last week and DJ in a day where, you know, it seems for me from a different generation is we played a lot of times when we were 70%. I mean, it wasn't just because we had an injury. We we automatically don't play. You know, I played hurt a lot. A lot of guys did. It seems like in a day and age where that doesn't happen as much. I've been watching DJ uh, the last month, month and a half, and I know he's had that foot problem. And, and you can tell. You can tell he's kind of a throwback guy that I'm going to do everything I can to be on the field. I'm not right. But when it starts to affect you to the point where you're not even yourself and the, and the second option is probably the better option, I think that's what they came down to. And, and I think DJ and Aaron came together over this little hiatus they had because they didn't have to play the first round and just came to the conclusion it was the best thing that DJ didn't play on. Not that he wouldn't have played, but how effective could he be? So, yeah, that's a big blow. Uh, Efros is definitely huge, you know, with the with the chaos that's gone in that bullpen. Oh. But, uh, you know, there's going to ha- have to be some guys that really step up. I look at it from an offensive standpoint, and for me, Stanton – is the, is the X factor in that lineup. If he hits, that gives protection to Judge. I think you kind of know what Rizzo's going to do, you know? He he's been big, he's come up with big hits and big home runs all year. So you can look up and down that lineup and kind of have a little bit of an idea. I think if they get past the first round, they're going to have access to Benintendi again, but in the first round, uh I'm trying to think Carpenter's back for the first round. That that was a big yes. shot in the arm for them that that came unexpected this year. They're going to have him, but Robert, I'll tell you, it comes down to this. Or how how well are you going to pitch? Is Cole yeah. going to be the Cole we expect yeah. to be? I think I think Nestor Cortez for me is the best pitcher on that staff right now. I think he's yeah. a guy from start to finish this year. Not not one you know, he never gives it up. A rough game for him, maybe he gives up three. But he's never had that explosion where, they hey, they got me for seven in three innings. So Nestor, I, I think, is going to be solid. I think Severino looks really good after coming off the 60-day IL. And I think uh, at the front of ro- that rotation, man, Cole's got to be Cole. If Cole's Cole, that's a completely different animal. It's like having a DeGrom in the stable. But if Cole's not Cole and, he, and he's up and down like he's been recently – uh, it's going to be an interesting series for them. I think they'll get by Cleveland. I really do. Uh, what's coming in that next round is going to be the real challenge. But then again, let's not look past the first the the first set of playoffs. I, I, I you are one hundred percent on the nose. The thing about the pitching though is, and and, and your brother's got the snake bit on this is nobody throws complete games anymore. So I mean, you don't expect good Cole if he's Cole Michael seven. But the other guys are out after six now. So the Yankee bullpen has been so decimated. 
Yeah. Uh, like you said, these guys have to really step up because in today's games, you don't have a bullpen. You're not winning. You're just not. Because guys power, don't. Power bullpens win. Absolutely. Uh, or different power bullpens and different look bullpens. Like Atlanta's bullpen last year, everybody had a different look. You know, you had submariners, you had left and right. That really, that steps up big time. However, I think it's about Cleveland. Boy, I like this team. Don't you love the way they play baseball? This is, I mean, it's, it's the youngest team. Do you know they're younger than 70% of AAA teams? This team, they put the ball in play. They move it around. Jose Ramirez may be the most underappreciated player in any sport. Um, I love, the, and, and the other thing is, don't you love all these veteran managers? With all these kids, don't you love seeing Terry Francota and Dusty Baker and, and Buck and, and even Aaron now is a veteran. Uh, you know, it's like I don't, you know, it's like the, the whole trend with all young guys and, you know, it's coming out of the front office. You didn't see that. And it's Snicker and, and even Rob Thompson of the Phillies. He's been around for 50 years. I love seeing that trend. I was watching Joe Madden talking about the analytics yesterday. And his thing was, you know, what is analytics? It's information. Just another word for information. He goes, the problem is, he goes, and what is it? When I was at Tampa Bay, where they started all this stuff, uh, uh, he said the thing about the most important thing about analytics is player acquisition. He goes, that's where it comes in handy. When you can dig into the numbers and see somebody who is not doing well for a reason in a certain organization, and you can get that guy on your team, that's the biggest thing of analytics. He goes game to game. He goes, yeah, you give me all the information you want. But once the game starts, and of course, now that's changing too. But uh, he goes, like you said, the players are going to play. The players are going to play. Now, your brother, of course, is working in an analytic. I know the Yankee organization really well. And there's no team that is more analytically driven than, than the Yankees. So, oh, I mean, he's got oh, believe, b- believe me, I hear about it. We debate it all the time. Oh, <laughs> oh, I can imagine. I mean, I have. I don't want you talking out of school, but I have no doubt. It was not Aaron's idea to start the opener last year in the playoffs to have Hap go one inning. That, that didn't come from Aaron. I'm sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way in hell, you know, that that came. Now, he'll take the bullet just like Dave Roberts took the bullet in L.A., you know, for pulling the pitchers out of perfect game going. But, you know, they're good soldiers. I understand it. But, you know, that's the uh, – but I do like the Cleveland team. It's a lot of fun to watch. And I got to love Jose Ramirez. I really do. But we're burying the lead. Let's talk about the Seattle Mariners. Oh. I'm looking up. You played the last playoff game that they did before today. Before today. Yes, I did. Yes, you I played, did. You know, you played in that game. Uh, and it was against Clemens. That was when uh, they were facing Clemens, wasn't it? That's right. Clemens beat us in Game Five and sent a because uh, that was such a such a magic carpet ride year for for that Seattle Mariners team winning all those games and and uh, you know obviously lately I'm getting a lot of phone calls about that with the Mariners being in the postseason sure. and, and what that was like for us and and uh, man that, that was such a special year and, and I think the only thing if we were guilty of anything and uh, you know I say this all the time not from an arrogant standpoint but from a confidence standpoint that particular 2001 ball club is it was such a special year and we never lost it seemed like every series we went into we didn't go in with that urgency of oh we got to win this series we went into that series like 
oh, we're going to win this series. It's just, are we going to sweep them or are we going to win two out of three? Are we going to win three out of four? And that's how we rolled. And like I said, it wasn't arrogance. It was just how that season went. So we got to that postseason. We went to Cleveland, didn't particularly play well. And we came out of there because that's what we did. We won series. We went to New York. I think we had handled New York pretty good that particular year. And we rolled in the Yankees. It was just a matter of playing the series and then going to the World Series and and playing that series so we could get our trophy and go home for the perfect season. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in game five against Clements, who we had done well. I mean, we wanted Clements. Clements pitched the game of his the game of his life. The game of the the best game that year he pitched was that game five against us, and he beat us. And I remember getting on the bus and and going back, you know, going to the airport and just looking around that that bus that my teammates like stunned. And and probably the look on my face was like, did that just that didn't just really happen? But it did. And uh you know, it's I'll always have that season. We'll always have that in those relationships and those and those players. What a great group of guys, uh, one in a million group of guys. But yeah, it still haunts us a little bit. Like I, I'll give all those wins back to you if you give me that World Series trophy. But uh, that's why we play the games, and that's why winning a World Series is so hard. And there's been so many great players that never even had the opportunity. To, to get to a World Series, let alone win one. So, you know, I, I, I kind of probably repeat myself too much, but I always say this time of year, whoever ends up winning this whole thing, really, really enjoy it because you're you're very fortunate to be in that position because a lot of people play this game for a lot of time, a lot of years and never get to win one. So I watch that team every year that wins it and, and the Super Bowl as well. Or the NBA Finals. I mean, winning the whole thing in, in sports at the highest level is so hard, but it's really cool when you see those guys celebrating. And I think, uh, especially the veteran players that are around that that know how elusive these things can be, they, they really pass that down to the young, younger generation and say, hey, really appreciate this because this is, this is unbelievable. It's cool to watch. I asked Roger one time years ago. I said, okay, ninth inning, game on the line. Runners in scoring position. Who's the batter you would least want to see at the plate? And he thought a second and he said, Edgar. He said, yeah. he has no holes. There's no holes with Edgar. He said, Edgar's the guy I don't want to see. Because uh, people, I mean, I used to love, like I said, I'm a Mariner fan. Now, I'm very, very tight with DePoto from his California Angel days. So, uh, so Jerry and I talk, we text every day just about. We talk about trades. I knew I knew about the Castillo trade, how he was going after him, uh, and Jerry rolled the dice big time. Remember, a couple of you remember when a couple of years ago at the All Star game, they were like three games out of first, and he sold the entire team. He said, "This team's not going anywhere. Let's get rid of everybody and get all these young players and go for the future." And he talked management into doing it, and they did it. And he rolled, and put his head on the line, and it sure worked out uh, so far. I mean, it's. I mean, I can't imagine. I, I just had the surgery. Otherwise, I'd be going up to Seattle because you got to believe that place is going to be rocking come uh, come the home game. Uh, I just uh, so I'm really rooting for Seattle, uh, big time. And I had to, I'm, how impressed are you with Julio Rodriguez? I just Julio's I, the real. Who's Julio's the real? Yeah, absolutely. There's not too much. Right. Too. He's a, you know what I knew that. Uh, you know what I mean. We see guys who come up. Uh, 
But when I was watching the game one night, and uh, the San Francisco broadcasters, they were playing the Giants, and uh, the San Francisco broadcasters were talking, and one of them turned to Hunter Pence, who's on their team, and uh, broadcast team, and he said, I saw you talking with uh, Julio came over to you during this. What were you guys talking about? And he said, Hunter Pence said, let me tell you, Julio Rodriguez comes up to me and says, I always, I want to introduce myself because I always loved the way you played because you never gave away an at-bat. Now, what kind of 20-year-old says that? You know, it's, you know, his parents are like both professionals. I mean, they made him go through, they couldn't, they wouldn't let him sign until he finished school. I mean, this, he is a real deal, this kid, boy. If you're going to bet on somebody, bet on this kid. Well, when they sign him to that big contract, and it's so rare in your first year, you get something, the numbers he got uh, financially. But when asked about it, I, I'd watched him quite a bit. And I said, this guy's the real deal. There's certain swings that don't go away. You know, I'm pretty I'm pretty pessimistic about young players. And when they come up, you need to show me for more than a, a small sample size. But the way I saw Julio start off this year, he started off struggling like most rookies oh, yeah. do, 21 yeah. years old. But the way he turned it around from April to mid-May, maybe the quickest uh, maturity process I've ever seen for a young player. And then I watched him for the next couple months. And certain guys, swings aren't going away. I think of a, uh, of a Tatis Jr. I think of a, a Kuna. I think of a, a Vladimir Guerrero. I mean, everybody wants to talk about Vladdy's year this year. Vladdy didn't have as good a year as he did last year. But that's 32 home runs, 100 RBIs on a down year. That's what you're getting. And I think that's what you're getting with a Julio Rodriguez. He's 21 years old. He's the heart and soul of that team already. I mean, for this Mariner team to beat Houston, who, in my opinion, is uh, it's Houston in the American League and there's everybody else. They're the elite team. I'm not saying the Mariners can beat them. They got to play their best, though, and Julio's got to show up. It's not too often that I've seen in my in my career and my time around baseball, where so much centered around one player. He is the key to that offense. He's what makes him go. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he. Uh, I agree with you on Houston, and Houston's got the bullpen. That's the other thing. Without Houston, a doubt. I mean, Houston is the team. I mean, the Dodgers. I watch them all because I'm out here, and. I mean, first of all, when have you ever seen three guys at the top of the lineup? I mean, that's as good as, I mean, with the exception of the big red machine. I mean, and the fact that we're comparing them to the big red machine is just those three guys at the top. And the catcher is pretty remarkable also, that Will Smith. Uh, he's, that team scores a lot of runs. When you've got like Bellinger who hit nothing and Muncie who hit nothing, and yet they're winning, they score so many runs, their Achilles heel could be the bullpen. You know, that's their Achilles heel. But the Dodgers are pretty, you know, like they're still winning. What, they win 111 games? I mean, that's a lot of games. That's a lot of games, yeah. That's a lot of games. Let me ask you, go around the diamond. Uh, best ball players you played with or against at each position? Best I played with or against. Okay. Um, against first base, man, there's a lot of them. It's tough, but start to finish. I'll try to be vague as I, well, not vague. I'll try to be as, I'm going to take it from a career, uh, not, not particular years. The most impressive I've ever seen at first base for a, for a season or a couple seasons was Mark McGuire, but on the body of work, way played the game. One of the best players I've ever been around was Jeff Bagwell at first base. 
uh, he was just the complete package. He'd steal 25 bags. He he was an all-star. He'd hit 40 uh, as good as anybody. And he, he was just such a smart base runner. When you think of Jeff Bagwell, you don't think of he's a great base runner. But he, he was the complete package. I'll go with Bagwell. For my time, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Alomar. At second base, just from a dominated the position for eight or nine years. Uh, shortstop Alex Rodriguez and, and no one else was really close. Uh, third base, man, there were some good ones. Wade Boggs at the beginning of my career, he was he was ending. But from a just a sheer hitter standpoint, from an all around, uh, it's tough to argue with an Adrian Beltre. So I, I've got a couple there at third uh, catcher. Best catch throw in the history of the game. No one's even close. Uh, Rodriguez, Pudge. Uh, Best hitter. I don't even think that's close in the history of the game, and that's Mike Piazza. I'll go to center field. Best pure. See, I'm giving you a little more than than the question, but I, I that's how my that's how my brain thinks. If we go to center field, I played with so many talented center fielders defensively. By far and away, defensively, the best center fielder I played with was Andrew Jones. He was just a step above all the greats, and I played with Griffey, Cameron, Torrey Hunter, all top shelf guys. Andrew's a, just a he's a tick higher than everybody. Uh, right field. Man, when I came up, the right fielder, I'm going to go with Larry Walker in right field as the best right fielder I played. Left field, uh, it's not even close. The greatest hitter. The greatest hit, the greatest hitter to ever walk this earth uh, is Barry Bonds. And, I, you know, I left him off because I should put him out there because the best pure header – Pure hitter, and I played with him for one year, was Tony Gwynn, so I can put him in right field as well. Best pure hitter. Best player I ever played with, Ken Griffey Jr. And once again, best player I've ever seen. Uh, it's it's not even close. It's Barry Bonds. You know, so I asked Roger that also, because I would ask him, who, you know, who's the best left-handed hitter he faced, right-handed hitter? And he said, the best left-handed hitter isn't even close. Like you said, it's not even close. He said one time... He was one time uh, we were facing him and uh, Roy Oswald's pitching, and he gets ahead of him 0-2. He's got a couple of fastballs by him. So, you know, and he goes, so he thinks he's going to sneak another one by Barry. He goes, so Barry's waiting there, and he hit, throws another one by him. He goes, Barry puts it into the next county. As Barry is coming down first baseline, you know, jogging the first, he turns to me at the dugout. He makes eye contact with me and throws up his hands and shrugs like, what was he thinking? <laughs> yeah, he's... Barry was Barry. Now, he also said, however, the best right-handed hitter he ever saw, he goes, was Pujols. Uh, well, he, Pujols was good. <laughs> yeah, you know, he said, that's... Pujols. I remember, he's a little laughed you. Uh, well, not Rogers right there. Um, I asked, now, what about pitchers? Left-handed, right-handed? Left-handed best pitcher I've ever faced, Randy Johnson. The second best is Tom Glavin. Uh Best righty. Gosh, that's tough. I told you I think Maddox may be the greatest pitcher of all time. Start to finish, body of work, consistency. Uh, But, man, for about three or four years, there was nobody that was better than Pedro. Pedro, yeah. There was nobody better than Pedro. From a closer standpoint, pretty obvious Mariano was the best. Uh, I give a second to Trevor Hoffman as far as closers. Um 
But but righty's man John Smoltz was was really really good. And what people don't know about Smoltzy is he had so many he had so many elbow problems during his career that he, that he had to constantly fight through. But uh, man, was he good. Smoltzy to me was just I, I couldn't figure him out. So he was tough. But yeah, lefty Randy Glavin righty. I'll go with. I'm going to go with Maddox. Kevin Brown was no walk in the park either, but I'm going to go with Maddox. Clemens and Schilling were in a different category. Clemens, one of the greatest pitchers of all times, without a doubt. I didn't mind facing Roger. I saw the ball well off him. Problem I had with Roger is late in his career, he came up with that split. That was kind of the X factor for him. He was getting a little bit older, but he came up with that split. That split was nasty. Schilling... Same thing. Whole career facing facing Kurt, no problems. I saw the ball well. He came up with that split. He became a next level pitcher. So mm-hmm. it was interesting my career how how start to finish the the guys early in in my career and then how I finished and and all the different guys I faced throughout. But that that's about as accurate as I can be on those pitchers. No, I mean that's that's, that's pretty much. And yet, you know, what's funny when I ask everybody, I'll say everybody, give me your all time team. And they pretty much give you, you know, pretty much about the same. Well, it all depends about the era. You know, they talk about Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan. There. Right, right. Uh, and they'll talk about, you know, uh, Mays. And, so. and yet I said, okay. And you, I, and I said, and they'll say, talk about Mike Schmidt at third. And, this, and invariably, they leave this guy off. Invariably. And I said, okay, you just gave him your all-time team. I said, however, if you're making out a lineup, who's leading off? Ricky, Ricky, you know, Ricky. Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. I, I forgot Ricky. You know, and Dave Winfield, he said, let me tell you how Ricky affected the team. He said, Ricky would just, he affected the pitcher so much. He goes, you'd watch him get on base and you could see how the pitchers were unraveled. He goes, you could just see it. He goes, and you know, and, and, and Ricky said, Ricky going to steal. Ricky going to steal. You know, and and he said, I said and it's funny because I always mention that, and then eventually they'll say, okay, I'll put him in DH or something. Uh, I go, it's interesting because you never said nobody ever says Ricky in left field because you got bonds. You know, they don't say, but I said, but if you're making out the lineup, who are you leading off with? <laughs> you know? right, exactly, and exactly, and well, the difference, what Ricky did that, and, and you know, you can put a Lou Brock or a Vince Coleman. There's a lot of guys. There's a guys that there's a lot of guys that steal bases. Uh, but there's not a lot of guys that in the bottom of the ninth with the game on the line where everybody in the stands and everybody on the field knows you're going, you could almost tell them and they still can't throw you out. And Ricky would do that. He'd lead off to walk the ninth. He'd steal not only second, second and third when you knew he was going. Those are the true star base stealers. Because and there's and, not and, and there's not too many people that can do it. A lot of people can do can steal twenty or thirty when nobody expects it. When the going gets tough and they're really paying attention, and you need that bag, not too many people have that have that skill set. And not only that, not only does he steal second and third, what he does is he takes away the pitcher bouncing the ball in the dirt when he's on third base. He takes that away because you can't risk that at all. Depends who you can- uh, Depends how great your catcher is. Well, your catcher, you know, you better have a lot of faith and you better throw that ball in the dirt where you can get to it at least. That's right. Because that's, that, you know, you're really, the other guy who I think gets underappreciated again, not quite in their class, but definitely a Hall of Fame, Tim Raines. Um, Great player. Tim, 
Great, great player. Tim Raines was a great, great player. I loved watching, and I loved watching him play baseball. I, I just did. Uh, there's certain guys I just loved watching them play baseball. When I was selling beer in the Astrodome, uh, I would be in uh, right field a lot. And the one guy, or if I'm down third baseline, the one guy, and this is going back some, but you remember this guy. When they would play San Diego, do you remember Nate Colbert when he used to take the, uh, he was like Sheffield almost. Him and Sheffield, when they got in the box, I wouldn't want to be the third baseman. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near those guys. Those two guys were intimidating, you know, in the box. I remember that. That's it as a kid. Uh, and Gary Sheffield's a pretty great player. Also. Great, great player. I mean, there's so many. I mean, we can get into this guy, and one of my favorites all time is is Albert Bell. I mean, look at his body of work. People just forget about Albert because his his career got cut cut short by you know. I think he had that uh, degeneration. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what. He, when I was a kid and I was playing in, in Cincinnati, we'd have that crosstown rival, you know, Cleveland Indian team. And I would love Albert Bell. And, you know, he had that reputation of being this mean thug. He's, he's a buddy of mine now. And, and I, but I loved him then. I said, I don't care what he is. That man is a bad man. And I want to hit like him because yeah. uh, he was probably, if not the, uh, you know, on, on one hand, top run producers in that, in that generation. I mean, he was ridiculous. Nobody wanted to face Albert Bell. Now let's talk about that. Cause I talk about this with friends and John Hart. When you look at lineups, one through nine, I don't know if I ever saw a better one through nine than those Cleveland teams. It's unbelievable. When you consider, okay, let's look. Yeah. Kenny Lofton leading off and Kenny's a very good friend of mine. And Kenny, you know, Kenny, you know, if you we talk about great center fielders, you know, Kenny's, you know, Kenny's good. Yeah, there, there's, there's an underrated guy right there. Oh, yeah, Kenny. Now, at second, you had, first you had Carlos Baerga. Then Alomar. Okay? Yep. Right. Then you have Alomar. Then at short, you got Omar, one of the great shortstops of all time. At third, first you have Matt Williams. Then or first, then you have Tomei before he goes to first. Then at first you have Eddie Murray before Tomei goes over there. Then you have uh, uh, Sandy Alomar Jr. behind the plate. Then in the outfield you have Albert Bell in left field and batting seventh. Seventh. Well, first you have Dave Justice when they had Justice. Then batting he leaves and you have Manny Ramirez batting seventh. Yep. And then Albert comes in. I mean, you're talking about where, I mean, I went to, I was very good friends with Wayne Heisinger. So I traveled with the Marlins during that whole, that whole World Series thing. And I couldn't believe that Miami could win a game. I mean, I watched, this lineup was the scariest lineup to this day, one through nine. Well, I think I think Tommy at the very beginning when they were rookies, Tommy and Manny were hitting seventh and eighth. Mm-hmm. And then you had, I mean, people forget the guys that went through that organization at the time. And that's when John Hart was at the helm. Yep. You, you had guys like Richie Sexton, who went on to hit 40 homers. Right. Brian, Giles. Brian Giles. Giles. Jeremy Burnett's came through that organization, right. ended up being a Met. And, and a Milwaukee Brewer. So they were like cast-offs from that team and, and ended mean, up being all-star players in their own right. But you're right. Start to finish for the decade of the 90s, uh, that, that's put up there with the, with the greatest offensive teams of all time. Yeah. What they never had was a true number one ace. 
That's what they never had. Well, it's kind of like the Texas Rangers. They went in and out. They had some great, brilliant teams offensively, but they never had that pitching staff to complement it. You know, the Mariners in the mid-90s. You know, I, I started off with the Mariners, and then I went to the Cincinnati Reds for six years. But those mid-90s Mariners teams, when Alex finally came up, I mean, you had Griffey, Edgar, Buner, Alex Rodriguez in the middle of that lineup. That's about as good as it gets. But but outside of yeah, outside of of uh, Randy Johnson, it was Randy, and then it was kind of an average average starting rotation. So they never they 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 never went to the World Series and and won it big time. But man, there were some in those nineties. There there were some good offensive teams. But I think you're right. I think Cleveland's right up there. All right, back to Robert. For a while, I'm sure baseball is going to come into this again. But uh, when did you decide? We all have as as kids. I, I know I did from from when I can remember. Somebody asked me, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you grow up?" You know, that's the question you get asked when you're in fifth grade. Well, I always said, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to be a big leaguer, and I'm going to play in the big leagues for 15 years." And I said that till the day I did. Um, I look back and, and, and laugh at myself and think how naive I was, but maybe at the same time, uh, that was a, that was something that I had in me that, that helped me, uh, a young Robert wool. What, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I wanted to be in show business. I wanted to be a storyteller making films, mostly writing and directing. Didn't think about, you know, performing as much, although it, it led me to that too. Was that I was in drama school, but, uh, but I classes, but, I became a stand-up comedian because I felt I using like Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and uh, guys like that, but Paul Mazursky, I, I used that because they were all comedians and I could write myself an act because I couldn't always depend on everybody casting me because there's probably better actors than me, but I could be myself and create a persona. So I used that as a stepping stone, but I always wanted to be, you know, in show business. I, I wanted to get out of Union, New Jersey. Uh, and, uh, but I always, you know, did, uh, I've been very fortunate, uh, that I got, I was lucky and my parents supported that. Uh, even though my dad, who was a businessman, they, he went into the family business and he couldn't understand how I would drive in from New Jersey every night to New York city about a half an hour each way at midnight to go on stage before five people at two o'clock in the morning. So I could hone my craft. He couldn't understand it, but my mother was, but he, but my mother supported said, this is where his heart is. Let's trust him. You know, and so I, I, I have them to thank for everything. And I was fortunate. I got some work right away. And uh, I, I've pretty much you know, been able to work. Uh, oh, I just read Angela Lansbury just died. Oh. Wow. Oh, she was 96. Oh, man. Pretty good life. That's a great life. And she was a, she was in movies since the, I, you know what's amazing about Angela Lansbury? Is that she was playing women 30 years older than she was when she was like 25. You know, it's like, I mean, she played in you know, the great movie, The Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra. Uh, she played Lawrence Harvey's mother. This is about the spy who is the, you know, the brainwashed spy. I think she was a year older than he was, and she gets nominated for an Oscar. She was great. I don't know anybody who ever had a bad word about Angela Lansbury. Okay, getting back to uh, what you're talking about. Um, so I was very fortunate. I was very, very fortunate. You went to the University of Houston drama department, um, and, and and that is interesting. You did stand up comedy, but as far as on film, what was your first role you ever got? As far as movies, yeah, oh, uh, the Hollywood Nights, Hollywood uh, Nights, nineteen eighty. 
That's correct. Yeah, I, I came out and I got that part in the movie, and I was very, very fortunate. The director let me play and live, and it became a cult movie. I didn't get any work from it at all, but now it's become this super cult movie, and there was a lot of talent in that movie. It was my first film, Michelle Pfeiffer's first film, Tony Danza's first film, uh, Fran Drescher, I think it was her second film. Uh, so there's a lot of talent. It did, it did okay at the box office, but it has become this cable cult film for 40 years now. Uh, more people stop me, with the exception of Batman and Arliss, because it's a TV series. I get stopped more for Hollywood Nights than anything else, including Bull Durham. Do you think there's any correlation between what a what a professional baseball player goes through? I mean, Bull Durham, and and we'll talk about that later. But that grind in the minor leagues, what's that? Do you think there's a correlation that that grind trying to get up to your first to your first role, and that, then all of a sudden your first role turns into your second role, then you become a, kind of distinguished and established? Do you think the grind's similar from what you've seen on the athlete side? Well, here it is. Okay, that's very funny you asked that. I actually, when I was a stand-up comic doing the clubs around the country, I always saw that as the minor leagues. Now, remember, I'm a sports guy. I'm a baseball guy. So I'm seeing it in those terms. Other people aren't. But I always thought, okay, I'm in the minor leagues. I'm learning my craft. I'm building a soda. So I'm in the minor leagues. Now, that's not the same as acting in a movie. But a lot, a lot of times you do see, you know, I was fortunate because I got a, uh, a pretty big part in my first film. Uh, but I didn't work again for about five years after that. So I, there is a grind. See, I do believe in craft. I do believe in learning craft. I think um, I'm a big believer in craft. I really am. I, I would uh, The great writer, Patty Chiefsky, who wrote Network, and he wrote The Hospital, and he wrote Marty, and he was one of my heroes. And he was a big believer in when these artists called themselves artists, he would get really pissed off. He said, I'm very wary of people who call themselves artists. What you do is you go to work every day and you put in a good day's work. And if you are truly an artist, no matter what you do, it's going to be art. But don't be saying you're an artist. Let Just put in a good day's work. So I always had that feeling. Let me go, you know, put in a good day's work. And if my work is good, somebody's going to recognize it sooner or later, you would hope. Um, so I, I'm a believer in craft. That's why I like, uh, you know, craftsman in baseball. I like, like Maddox was the ultimate craftsman. Um, you know, there are, you, you, know, you talk about LeMahieu. You talk about Tony Gwynn. You talk about somebody like Al Oliver. There's a name, Al. Or, or, <laughs> you know, or Tony Oliva. Or um, I love those kind of players. I loved, I loved craftsmen. I loved Louis Tion. To me, he was crap, you know. By the way, having Brett. Have you ever heard a right-hander called a crafty right-hander? Never. No, only, Why don't no, they use that? Only left-handers. They're only left-handers. I'm a left-hander. So it's like only left-handers are crafty. It's almost it's almost condescending. Like he's good yeah, enough. He's not it's not he's not good enough, so we're gonna call him crafty. It's almost saying the little guy's good for his size. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've never heard a right-hander called crafty. Ever. The uh, so I so I do believe in craft though. I do believe when I see a good piece of writing, a good piece of you know, a, a good at bat, a good uh, uh, whatever it is, a good piece of acting, a good you know, a good piece of I, I like craft. I really, you know, and I think and that doesn't mean all the arts. A guy who paints your house, a plumber, you know, who the good guys are, I mean, a good mechanic. Um, you know, it's like I just appreciate. 
real good professionalisms. I really do. Um, and it's so funny when you mentioned about young guys coming up and everybody, like you say, you're skeptical. So am I. That's the baseball side. That's my dad's part of me. But I'm always reminded of the great Bill Parcells line when he says, hey, can a guy win a few games before we put him in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. It's exactly it's right. right. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, let's see. You know, and, and by the way, one year, and let's see, as they say in sports, which is no different than anywhere else, let's see them make the adjustment because people are going to make an adjustment to you. How do you make the adjustment back? Uh, so that's what I really appreciate and watch. You know, I really like that. I really do. This is also a, a, another thing that stood out to me. And you mentioned the, the stand-up comedy and doing the clubs and the grind of going club to club. The minor leagues, I've, I played with a lot of guys. You know, you play with a, a lot of guys that, that are minor league players. And then you play with some guys that have big league talent, but they get to the big league field and they freeze. It's a, and, and I wonder if there's a correlation, once again, between doing the club doing the club down the street, and then all of a sudden, Carnegie Hall. You ever see a guy that was great on the smaller stage, but you put him into the big-time movie, uh, the big-time stage, the Carnegie Hall type thing? Did you ever see him go, wow, he's he's not the same guy? Uh, Well, no. Well, that's not quite – I know what you're getting at. It's not quite the same thing because you don't get to Carnegie Hall unless you're – a known factor and you could sell tickets and you've had a specials or stuff. You like got, that. you got to be, you no. got to be a draw. You got to be a, a, a for sure. draw. Yes. Now I've seen guys. I know of many comics who just, you know, of course comedy is so subjective. What makes one person laugh does. I know comics who make a hundred million dollars and don't make me laugh. And just, and, and we all, that's just personal taste. You know, and that, that'll be, I can name a half a dozen of those guys. I don't want to single them out, but there's a lot of guys that don't make me laugh. I'm, I'm a critical eye, but that's me. Other people may find them hysterical. Um, I, I, when comics talk about other comics, then when comics, it's like anything, you know, you talk about ballplayers talking about other ballplayers. When you get comics talking about other comics, and the, like Jay Leno is a great comic. He's a good, forget The Tonight Show. He is one of the great all-time stand-up comics. If you have, Jay Leno was never bombed anywhere, anywhere. He is great as a stand-up comic. And, he's, and, he, and, he, and Jay Leno is, is a great stand-up comic. Now, David Letterman, it was a great broadcaster. He was not a great stand-up comic. It's a different, that's different. Um, there's guys who, you know, it's just, who are just, you know, other comics watch. They watch, they'll watch Chris Rock. They want to see what is Chris Rock. George Carlin. I got to work with Carlin for a while. We worked together every day for a month writing a piece. Uh, and Carlin was so special. Uh, he was special. Um, uh, there are guys... And there are different types of comics, too. There's guys, Rodney. My first job was writing for Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney was my mentor. Rodney got me into the, the thing. And Rodney could write jokes better than anybody in the world. He was also crazy. Rodney was nuts. Uh, Rod, Rod, Keith Richards had nothing on partying than Rodney Dangerfield. Rod, Rod, Rodney, but, but there was nobody funnier. Uh, and Rodney, you talk about a craftsman. For all his nuts, Rodney would go every night and just hone these jokes and just because he knew he was going on Johnny Carson, and he had, he had 32 jokes, and they all had to be killers. There was not one, you know, this is okay. That wasn't good enough. They all had to kill. He said, Robert, you got to do damage, my buddy. You got to do damage. The, um, so, uh, you know, Rodney, other comics watched. Um, 
uh, trying to, well, of course, Richard Pryor, other comics. Um, you know, so, but that's not, but it's, it's different. It's not like they get to the show. Now, I, now I have seen comics who killed the clubs, and then when they get on TV, didn't do that well. I, I can be guilty of that sometimes. Um, you, 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 for whatever reason, remember, on TV, you're doing six minutes, and the crowd may not be up. You know, it's, a, it's a different thing. But that was back then with The Tonight Show. That was, you know, something else. Uh, but I've seen comics do that. But comics watching other comics will, will tell you who the really great comics are, who really do something special. Um, and can continue to do it for a period of time. That's the other part. And that's that brings it back to what we talked about earlier, the baseball. The, you you want to know who the true great comics are? Go down and ask all the comics. They're going to know. Yeah. It's not going to be what the what the critics say or what the, the average fan says. If you want to talk about who is the most talented comics, go talk to other comics because they're going to give you the straight answer. Yeah. Now, and by the way, you may not like them a lot of times. Right. Now, for example, I started in the clubs – uh, we had a great group and when I was in New York at the Improv. It was me, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes, Paul Reiser. Uh, you, you name it, they were there with me. And the comic was Gilbert Gottfried. And the comic who always bombed most of the time, but all the comics would watch, was Larry David. Because he was just funny, but he wasn't for the masses. But he made the other comics laugh. You know, it's like when you watch comics and the band's always laughing. You know, it's right. like the band's laughing. They know. But that happens sometimes. Um, or jazz musicians, same thing. Who do the jazz musicians watch? You know, who are the other singers? It's like I, I was very tight friends with Glenn Fry of the Eagles. And I would say, who do, who do you guys watch? You know, who do you, I would travel with them. And they would talk about who do they watch. And it's individual. And it's more individual taste. But about musicians and singers, you know, everybody would watch Tony Bennett. Everybody would watch Linda Ronstadt or Aretha. Or um, Patsy Cline, you know, it's like, you know, these are Dolly Parton. These were the great singers. And he told me something interesting. When he was inducting Linda Ronstadt into the Hall of Fame, they did this uh, this tribute to Linda Ronstadt because Linda can't sing anymore because of Parkinson's. So they had all these young singers on there. And he came back from rehearsal and he goes, boy, Carrie Underwood blew me away. So that gave me, I go, oh, I, I thought she was good, but I didn't think she was, you know. And he goes, yeah, she's the real deal. So when Glenn Fry tells me that, yeah, yeah, you know, I believe it. 1987, you do Good Morning uh, Vietnam. Robin Williams, another well, yeah, great that, that's, comic. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's another special thing. Robin is special in a whole different way. And a special human being in a whole special way. Robin, I knew Robin from when he was, in, he was just before he started working with me. And this is the late 70s, uh, 77 or so. And he came into New York, and we'd all heard stories about this San Francisco comic who would go on stage at 3 o'clock in the morning with five people and blow the room away. And he came on, and we saw him for the first time, and we hadn't seen anything like that before. And he was, there was nothing like Robin Williams. And he was so special, and the, one of the great human beings of all time. Like I said, he was a San Francisco comic. So in the early 80s in San Francisco, the comedy scene there was decimated by AIDS, as you can imagine. Robin, who had worked with all these guys, most people didn't know Robin was supporting these guys medically when, you know, they couldn't, you know, he, he Robin was super special human being. As good, as great a genius comic as he was, he was even a better human being, you know.
know, it's like you hear that about, you know, guys are ball players like that. But Robin was something special. You know, Robin was, and of course, I knew when we did Good Morning Vietnam, we knew each other. So, you know, so we, we trusted each other and we could throw each other, I could throw him lines. Like when he's doing the monologue, I go, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? So that, you know, Robin, Robin wins. What do you say? Moved on to 89, Batman and Blue Chips in, in 92. So you had, you had Nicholson, Keaton, Nick Nolte, back to back in Batman yeah. and Blue Chips. And remember, before that, I got Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon. Oh, no, I'm, I'm bringing that later. I'm bringing that because I got I, – I, you know what I did last night? I, w- I had to fly down to Atlanta. I did a golf tournament. And guess what I watched on the way home because I knew today was our day and I had to rewatch it. I've watched it 100 times. But I watched Durham. Again, on the flight home. So I'm, I'm going to get to Durham. I'm going to get to Durham last, but I want to go over the other things first because I, I love Bull Durham and I'm very critical as a baseball player. These baseball movies come out and I'm going, oh, OK, what are you going to do? Throw tobacco in everybody's mouth. They're going to yeah. spit and they're going to do let yeah. the director who has no clue what it's really like now to the masses. They love it. But to me, they don't know. I'm critical. So we're going to get to that in a minute, but I, I want to talk about Batman and Blue Chips. Oh, and we got Cobb, too, with Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Batman I auditioned for, and uh, thank God I got, you know, I, Marion, Marion Dowdy was a casting director. She brought me in to meet Tim Burton, and Batman was just a magical experience. I was in London for four months, and uh, I only shot maybe three weeks. But uh, it was just being there on Batman per diem money and, uh, and and hanging with Jack. And now Michael, I had also, Keaton, I had known also because he was a stand-up comic originally. So Michael, I knew, didn't know him real well, but we knew each other. But uh, uh, but Batman was special. Just going to the set, Pinewood Studios, every day, which is where they have to do the Bond movies, and seeing the, the, the Gotham City built, and people for you know, every one of these superhero movies that are out now, all these Marvel DC movies, every one of them should give a royalty to Tim Burton because he changed everything. Before then, Batman was always jokey and campy and stuff like that. And Tim went darker. Tim said, that's not what I'm doing here. And, I, and also people forget that when Michael Keaton was announced as Batman, there was this huge backlash from Batman fans because Michael, they knew as Mr. Mom and Night Shift. They said, what is, and Beetlejuice. It's like, what is he doing in this? You know, we want somebody tough. And had there been social media back then, I'm not so sure he would have survived. And now he's the standard. Because I knew Michael, because I knew him from the stand-up days, and what a great actor he was. And I knew he had a dark side. So, um, no, that was, Batman was awfully, awfully, awfully special. And hanging out with Jack. That's the other thing. You know, when you hang out with Nicholson, yeah. who, was one of the, who was one of the smarter human beings I ever met, and, and, and was telling me stories. I mean, he's been a star for so long, and he'd been in London for so He would tell me stories with Bobby. So I remember going to a party with Princess Margaret, and I'm coking her up pretty damn good, right? <laughs> and you're hearing, you're hearing coking up Princess Margaret. And he's telling me stories about, uh, he, all, I, he did, I did something really stupid, but he told me how to smuggle weed into London. This is a true story. And he says, what you do, Bobby, is you mail a fan letter to yourself saying, you don't know me, but here's a little something to keep you going. That way, if they catch you, you can say, I don't know who the hell this guy is. He didn't say the word hell. 
But he goes, and, and how stupid was I to do this? And it worked. The, uh, but it was like looking back, I said, that was pretty, that was pretty stupid. The, uh, but, and also he would tell me great stories. I'd be at a party with Jack, and a girl would come up to him and say, you want to dance? And Jack would go, wrong verb. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's nobody, nobody yeah. like Jack. Yeah, no, he, right. He is. He just kind of transcends like what's real. It, it's he's almost like a fictional character. There's Jack. Yes. And there's and there's only yes. a few people in that category. Uh, Babe Mick, Ruth. Babe yeah, Ruth. Babe Ruth, Mick Jagger's kind of like that a little bit. You know, like if you yeah. if you if you saw Mick Jagger down at Vons, you'd be like, that's got to be an impersonator. That's not Mick Jagger's really not no. a person. Yeah, he's he's yeah. in that he, he's in that genre. Uh, you go on to blue chips. I'm personally a big fan of Nick Nolte. I've always liked Nick Nolte. Uh, and I, and I really like that movie too. And then you go to Cobb and you, and you there with Tommy Lee Jones. Interesting thing for me, you're such a, you know, and now talking to you, I, I get an understanding that you, you love the game of baseball so much. Was it different for you when you're doing a baseball movie? Did you start to to like what we're talking about say hey i want to i want to depict this as correctly not the hollywood version i, I want to get it as right on as i can the first one is Cobb, and then obviously bull durham uh well here's the thing ron shelton and i became such good friends during bull durham. and he was a minor league and player wasn't he i got not only was he a minor league player you should read his book that came out called the church of baseball it came out last month it's about his career and making Bull Durham. And you go today and get it. Get it today because it'll tell you everything about why baseball movies mostly suck, like we say, about his career. You know, he played with the Rochester uh, Rock. You know, he was on with uh, Don Baylor and Bobby Gritch. He played with those guys. And uh, and he realized, he realized he was a second baseman. When they moved Gritch from short to second, he knew his career was over with the Orioles. So... Um, but Bobby, by the way, another great underappreciated ball player, Bobby Gritch. Um, so getting it right wasn't even with Cobb. It wasn't even a club because we, we wouldn't, you know. Ron and I would talk about, you know, Ron always talks about why most baseball movies suck, and they do, like you said. Yeah, to the public they may like it, but to the trained eye, here's why. In fact, let me take it back. Most sports movies suck. It doesn't mean I don't like sports movies, but here's well, the thing. it's it starts it starts with it's tough to reenact the actual movement of an athlete at that level because you don't have access to them. That that's part yeah, of the problem. That's part of it. Although all the players in Bull Durham, with the exception of uh, with the exception of Tim Robbins, they were all mostly ex athletes. I mean, but but you, you know what? And I was watching Tim Robbins. But it's okay if you're Tim Robbins, right? Doesn't that make sense? Like if you're yeah. just kind of a a, a no name actor playing second base, yeah. you better you better be able to turn the double play. But if you're Tim Robbins, I think the audience accepts it because you know yeah. if you're Kevin Costner, the audience is that. Although Kevin has good actions, and I know I think he well, played. Kevin, he was a Kevin player at uh, Cal State Fuller. Yeah. 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 Now he had to work. However, he did have to learn to switch hit. He was a right-handed hitter. He, he had to learn to switch hit, which he did really well. Kevin's a really good athlete. So here's the thing. And, and by the way, there was another guy. I mean, all the other guys on the team. Ron had auditions. He actually had a, a week of boot camp of training, like spring training, before we shot. And he actually replaced one of the ball play, one of the actors because he couldn't play ball well enough. Now the shortstop, believe it or not, was a guy who played. 
uh, in San Diego with the San Diego organization with Ozzie Smith, and his name was Danny Gans. And you may remember later on, Danny Gans becomes the king of Las Vegas. Yeah, so the comedian. Right, right. That, that's Danny playing a shortstop. The uh, now and, and by the way, our technical advisor for the for the team was the was the was the uh, coach of the Durham Bulls at the time, whose name was Grady Little. <laughs> no way, Grady! Yeah, I love yeah. I love I love Grady. How can you not love Grady Little? I, I love mean, him. a man who's been he, he, that, that he got he got a bad rap. The um, I mean, why would no? Why would you keep him the best pitcher in your generation when you don't have anything in the bullpen? You know, I was I was in I was in the booth for that, so I'm with Buck and McCarver, and I was the. That's when Major League Baseball just started to eject that third guy in the booth. I didn't want to do it; they coerced me to do it, so I, I kind of don't say much. But I was there during that, and I back Grady Little to this day. I back him. I said, "That's part of managing, right there." What we talked about. It's about Grady Little with one of the greatest pitchers of all time, Pedro Martinez, and having that. You live with these guys for six, seven months a year. And if Pedro Martinez looks at you and says, I got this, Grady, there's certain people that have that have that privilege, have that right to say, I got this. And you turn around and say, he's got this. And I, I never realized Grady took a lot of heat for that. And I just thought, that's job. it's unbelievable. It's um, there's certain guys that have earned that right to say. And when you're the horse, I played with a lot of guys. Certain guys, you come to the you come to the mound and you say you've had enough, and you know give them give me the ball. And some guys, you say, what do you think? And you let them decide because they've earned it. Right. And the other thing about it is, you know, here's the other thing people when they talk about managers, and we wish your dad would be here. Just because the move doesn't work doesn't mean it was the wrong move. For I mean, because you remember. Who was it? Was it O'Neill or uh, Hideki Matsui? He broke his bat and he dunked it over second base. You know, it's like it wasn't like he hit a frozen rope to the right field corner or something like that. He dunked it. There's a whole thing. I remember uh, uh, when the Marlins played that time and Jack McKeon was managing the Marlins. He, every move he made was ridiculous, yet they worked. A guy would he'd bring in a pitcher and the guy would hit a rope, but he'd go right at the shortstop. Or he'd bring in a batter, and the guy busted him, and he dunked it over second base. You know, just because the move didn't work doesn't mean it wasn't the right move. You know, that's but you can never tell the fans. Getting back to Ron Shelton, which this dovetails into that. The reason that most sports movies don't work is because they're always told from the point of view of the fan. And the fan only cares about one thing. Did the team win or lose? Nothing else matters. That's all they care about. Did the team win or lose? Ron Shelton was a ball player. He said, I don't know what the fans thinking. I know what the guy at second base is thinking. And he's thinking, I'm trying to keep my job. I go, absolutely correct. You know, and the fan only cares about that. They don't care about what they, they don't care how they got there, what they did to get there. Who, you know, they don't care. If the team won, they won. If they lost, they lost. And that's why most sports movies, when you think, and the other thing is that it always comes down to the big game in sports movies. Always a big game. And Ron said, there are no big games, really. He says, yeah, you play a couple in your lifetime, but basically it's routine. He says, Bull Durham doesn't come down to a big game. Think of your best sports movies. 
And you mentioned one of them, the Bad News Bears, which I think is the most underappreciated. Um, I think it's the most underappreciated uh, uh, sports movies. It really doesn't come down to them, even though they lose the big game at the end. But it really it's not about that. You know, the same thing with Rocky. Rocky comes out to the fight and he loses the fight. You know, the hustler. It comes down. It, most of them, Requiem for a Heavyweight. The, um, the, uh, so I, the, uh, you know, they come down to a big game. You know, and that's not what your best things are about, really. You know, uh, so that's why. And of course, with, with Bull Durham, like I said, the director called cut that first time. He goes, it's routine. Everything is routine in the, you know, and he captured the minor leagues. He knew the minor leagues and, uh, and he had done all that stuff, but it was a love story. He was making a sexy little love story. And, uh, and, and it was always about, and it's about something that he believed in. It's like, what happens when you have to give something up you love because you just aren't good enough. And here comes this other guy who doesn't have one scintilla of your intelligence or anything, but he's got a gift. He says, you know, he goes, that's what it's about. He goes, and it's, and it's a love story. And then he decided to tell it through the eyes of Andy Savoy, which gave it sex. And that's what made it work. I thought, I thought it was great. And it is because I go into each movie and, and I can't help but be critical, but I watch it and I said, that's a pretty good portrayal of what the minor leagues was like. I played in my first, uh, when I first, when I first signed in 1990, uh, I went to the Carolina league and I played at that ballpark in, in, in Bull Durham. And uh, that's what it's like. I mean, that's what you do. You got these long bus trips. The only thing, if, if I'm going to get picky about it, the only thing you don't do is you don't get up on a day off and drive to the next city and stay the night without playing a game because then you're, you're wasting a, a hotel night that they're not normally going to pay for. That was the night that, you've, that you drive there and then it ends up, you know, they go out and get the, the game rained out. I said, no, you never go into a, a place. The day you drive is always the day you play. That was the only thing I could find in the whole movie, but but I really liked it. I, I think that the interactions between you and and the skipper, you know, in the in the clubhouse, it's a little over the top. But I'll tell you what, it's not beyond Lou Pinella to do something like that. Throw those bats in the shower and have a little talk with the team. I could see someone like Lou doing that. When you go out to the mound and you have the goofy talk about. Uh, about the candlesticks. It's like, no, this is what you do on a bit. That's what those conversations are like. And and the goal is to get his mind off what he's not doing right now on the mound. It talked about completely something different. So now you're pitching again and bam, nine times out of 10, I come to second uh, from second base. When I come in to talk to the pitcher, it's not about anything he's doing. It's not about his mechanics. It's, it's about, hey, I'm going to give you a little breather right here. We might look at somebody in the stands, point something out. But it's completely nothing to do with the game. I'm giving him a break to just gather himself and get ready. And I thought that was great because that's realistic. And it makes sense now that Ron Shelton is behind it because he's lived that. And he, he lived it through AAA. I can't impress you enough to go get that book. Uh, the Church of Baseball, the making of Bull Durham. Without a doubt, I will. I will. And by the way, the fact that you just watch it, it breaks down every scene, by the way, and why he wrote it and how the studio didn't want him in the movie. And, and he talks about his minor league career. Here's hysterical. Here's the interesting thing. When he gets drafted out of high school, he goes to his team, and I think it's Stockton he's playing in, in, in California. He, he goes to a team where he's not only he's not the first Ron Shelton. There's another Ron Shelton on the team. 
And you know, and, and he, there was another player named Ron Shelton. And what's interesting is that Ron Shelton's son is now Dave Shelton, who's the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Wow. Oh, you let me tell you something. You will you will take this book and love it. Uh, you will take it because it's all about the minor leagues. It's about baseball. His love of baseball. His hero uh, in his town that he grew up by Santa Barbara was Eddie Matthews, because Eddie Matthews was a local hero. And he talks. I mean, you're going to love this. And then he talks about his baseball career and how it, when he when he realizes it's got to go. And then he then he starts writing screenplays. And then when he talks, they need to learn how how they sold the movie with Kevin Costner and how it wasn't going to be made. And then you realize he shoots the movie, and you're going to love this book. I I have to tell you, it's one of the best. Forgetting baseball, it's a great book about Hollywood. It's a great and it's a great baseball book. Moving on from Bull Durham, you go. To, now we go from the big screen to the small screen. We're doing Arliss. I looked at. I was. I was just curious on how many guests you had. And I'll tell you what, Robert. I started to get pissed after a while. I'm like, I never got asked to be on Arliss. I'm kidding. But you. You had so many guys. You. Had, I, I can't even name them all. How did. How did you prepare to play the agent? Well, I met with a lot of agents. Uh, I met with all the, including Adam. And including Tom Rich, and uh, every I met with all of them. The only one I really didn't meet much with was Scott Boris. Now he's become my best friend. Back then it was you know he was kind of standoffish, but since then we've become friendly. Uh, but I met with you know Arn Tellum and all these agents and everybody, and um, and also my father ran a business, you know, and, and to me it was about a guy running a business, and he's running a small business. The only thing unique about it was the fact that he had very unique clientele young people who had a very short career life expectancy. And I was very much, and I knew how business worked because my father ran a business. You know, we had, we had my father's family and my family had always had a produce business. You know, it was, it was a very successful and it's still around to this day. My family's not involved anymore, but it's still around. So I knew how decisions were going to be made and I wasn't going to make them on Hollywood terms. It was like, um, we did an episode. I remember, and I lo- I would love get, getting into social issues and stuff like that. And the more we did the show, the more I did that. Uh, there was an episode where there was, um, I, Arliss represents a, a, a lot of big pitchers who were like like a Glavin and a, and, a, and a Clements, all the guys who were big time in the union. Now, what happened is it was after the, after the replacement players, and Arliss is in a car, and the car catches on fire, and the guy who saves his life was a replacement player. And, and, and so the guy, I, you know, Arliss thanks him, and he says, anything I can do for you? He goes, would you mind representing me? Now, everybody in the writing room said, oh, you got to represent him. I go, there's not a chance in his hell <laughs> that he is going to risk losing Clemens and Glavin and all these big guys to represent a replacement player who, if he's lucky, he can hook on a job as a minimum. There's not a chance in hell. However, what he does in good storytelling is he winds up getting another agent who's down on his luck to, to he winds up, you know, getting him a job. Uh, but I see, but in Hollywood, you know, they want happy endings. And the fact was that that's not real. That's just not real. Another thing was, I remember, we would take stories about, uh, we would hear about like these basketball players, NBA players, and how many uh, illegitimate kids one guy had. He had like 11 illegitimate kids. So I would talk to the agents and I said, okay, how do you break this down when one of your clients has an illegitimate kid? 
And he says, we try to talk the girl into getting an abortion. It's that simple. He says, because if they have the abortion, it might cost the player $100,000. If she has the baby, it's going to cost him millions. So my job is to see if we can talk them into doing that. And I did a story about that. It's not a very pleasant story, but it's real. You know, it's real. That's, you know, I, it's like I was very much about what is that. Remember, I'm a big comedy, too. So I would do dark stories and light stories. Um, we did a story about one of Arliss's first clients, or his first client, is a guy who was in his last year of eligibility for the Hall of Fame. And uh, he was one of these old-timey guys, like a Gil Hodges type or something like that. Uh, but uh, just before the election, he gets accused by his second wife of, uh, of domestic abuse. And, Arliss, and this woman's a drunk. So Arliss's job is to discredit her. And he finds out learning that the guy couldn't have been there because the first wife, his ex-wife, comes over and said, he was with me. He was with me, and we're trying to get back together again, but we don't want to have this in the papers now. So Arliss winds up discrediting her, and then when he gets elected, and Arliss, he asks Arliss to represent him, to introduce him, the ex-wife said, and tells him during the whole thing, he goes, he wasn't with me. He wasn't with me at all. He goes, why do you think he never contested our divorce? And I go, wow, so why did you keep your mouth shut? She goes, I'd much rather have my son be the son of a Hall of Famer than the son of a domestic abuser to grow up with. And it's like, whoa! And then when he comes in, and Arla says, I can't introduce you at the Hall of Fame, they don't say anything, but they exchange looks, and he knows that he knows. So I love that kind of storm. Because uh, that's real to me. That's re That absolutely happens. You know, so... I do, I do like stuff like that, you know, so um, so that's, but how do I find out? A lot of it's human nature. A lot of it is a guy running a business. It's just that simple. A lot of it was like superstitious with athletes. Um, the reason, by the way, when you say you, I didn't invite you, most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, you know, we didn't travel. So it was who was in town and who, who when are we shooting and who's available and what athletes in town. That's really why we wrote, with rare exceptions, with rare exceptions. Uh, but it's, you know, what team is in town, who's available, you know, and then we would rewrite the part to fit that. So right. obviously we had Angels on, we had Dodgers on, we would have Lakers on. Hey, I remember when uh, when Kobe Bryant, the first thing he ever did was Arliss. He just came out of high school and he signed a $40 million contract. So we got him about a week after he signed the contract. And he's on there, and I remember we're shooting the scene with him, and I notice a woman standing over to the side, and I go to my producer and say, who's that? And they said, well, that's his social worker. I said, I beg your pardon? He goes, a social worker. He's underage. I go, he just signed a $40 million contract. How do I get a social worker? <laughs> you know? It's like, so we had we were very fortunate. Shaq, and the only ones I didn't get on was Ali because he wasn't in good health. And I wanted Martina Navratilova because she's funny, but she lived in Switzerland. But everybody else, we pretty much, we were very lucky. Jordan, we stole a shot. He agreed to do a little something in the beginning because uh, what's-his-name really liked uh, the show. Uh, uh, what's-his-agent's name? Uh, Jordan's? I can't think of his uh, name. I, I know. David yeah. Falk. But, uh, Peter, David Falk. Falk, right. So he loved the show, so he let us steal a shot. And same thing with Tiger Woods. So, um, But most of the time, you know, we and, and what we would always do, too, is if it was a story that we knew that we didn't want to embarrass the person whose story, we would change the sport. 
We, oh, I got you. I got you. Change the sport. So I can tell you something. I, you know the story left and right. I don't want to bring it up here. I can tell you off camera. But we would uh, change the sport and twist it around a little bit so it wasn't that obvious. Although sometimes a smart sports writer would call and say, hey, great way to tell that story. Right, because they'd be onto it. Oh, you know, it, it's I, I love that side of the business too. Because you know, I've lived. I had an agent before I went to Tom and Adam, and just uh, just watching that that journey and and things that go on behind the scenes. And and uh, we just had I just had Lee Steinberg on. Yeah. And he was really interesting to talk about, you know, then they kind of made Jerry Maguire after him. He went through a tough time in his life and he came back. Uh, but it's real to me, it's interesting. And I think you did a great job because at the core, you, you are, you're, you're about comedy. So you always had an edge to you in that Arliss character that I thought was great. And it, it went for how many years did you end up doing that? Six or seven years? Uh, we did seven seasons. I'll tell you a story. I got a curse though. We've got so much. It's a podcast. Yes. Okay. So I'm at, I'm at the ball game, the Dodger game one time, and I'm sitting in the, uh, the owner's box with Tommy Lasorda. Now, Tommy was on our list maybe three or four times. And Tommy says to me, how many years did your Arliss show go on for? I said, we did in seven seasons. We did 80 episodes. And he goes, I'll tell you what was wrong with your show. <laughs> okay. He goes, it was a language. Did you have to use that kind of language? And I said, Tommy, we were on HBO. He says, I don't give a fuck. No, that's well, right. Everybody in the box cracks up. Tommy has no idea what he said. No idea what he said. So, um, uh, but I mean, but yeah, I got through 80 episodes, which are all on HBO Max. They now have it up. You could, you know, just to give a plug, you can watch them and they hold up remarkably well. I would have to say that, uh, you know, only a few of them were ever, they weren't topical really. So they hold up remarkably well. Sadly, one of the actors who was in one of my favorite episodes, died yesterday, and it was Sean Penn's mother. Eileen Ryan is her name. And she played in one of my favorite episodes. It, it was She played the wife of Ed Asner, who played a broadcaster, a baseball famous broadcaster, who was beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's. And she played his wife. And this, if you want to watch something that you're going to love and tears are going to come down your face, this is the episode. Um, and uh, But she died yesterday. I saw it today in the... Uh, in the paper. In fact, I'll do a Facebook post when I get out of here. Um, oh, and by the way, I also had a, uh, I also gave a first job to a woman who no one ever heard of, a young girl named Sandra O, who I had on the show for 80 episodes. You know, she was my sidekick. That's right. That's right. Eight, and she was in 80? She's in every show. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the media side of it. As an athlete, I've got to deal with the media. Good game, bad game. You know, I learned to do that, and and it was fine because I thought you're paying me a lot of money. Uh, you can be critical of me. Do it in a professional way, mm -hmm. but but I, I could handle criticism. If I wasn't playing, let me know because I know when I'm playing well, I'm going to get the praise. So the good comes with the bad, and that's just part of the that's part of the deal. That's what you signed up for. When it comes to Hollywood, from Arliss to 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 Bull Durham to to Batman, when they, how how serious do you take uh, the, the, when a review comes out? Is that like you open that paper and back then you're opening the paper? Is it oh shit they gave me a bad review or I don't care I know how good this project is? Oh, there's both of that, uh, and especially when it came to Arliss. 
Arliss was, I mean, I, it was polarizing as hell. Critics either loved it or they hated it. And especially the elite critics hated it because they're not sports fans. They hate sports, most of them. Uh, and most of them. The, but it was, that was tough. And, and it actually hurt the show a little bit. But, uh, but it was a split. But that's hard. But to me, it's like when I hear about actors who are, you know, you know, about criticism. I say, you know, you guys got it really easy. I mean, athletes get booed at work. <laughs> they, 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 they call my mom's name, my right. mom names, what I mean, I'm trying to hit. Nobody is doing a scene and having, no actors doing a scene and have somebody go, hey, you suck, you blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I get pissed. I get pissed at golfers all the time when they go, oh, we need to quiet, please sign them. That's, oh, really? I said, that's bullshit. Oh, I said, people oh. could talk about my mom, but I need to be completely silent when oh, you're teeing off. I go, come on, how many ball players have you people scream at them, 50,000 fans, with a ball that's coming at them 100 miles an hour and doing curves? That golf ball is not going anywhere. It's sitting up on a fucking tee. I mean, give me a break. Without a doubt, there's nobody more pampered than golfers. But they always they always talk about it, but it's a gentleman's sport. It's a gentleman's sport. My dad used to talk about that. He said, golfers? He goes, and the other people who are really pampered, he says, because I guess he was, are swimmers. He says, swimmers are the most entitled people in the world. He goes, tennis players can be pretty good too about that. Anytime there's a singular athlete, I guess. Yeah. You know? Oh, that tennis match is always, if somebody's yelling from the crowd, they'll, oh, they'll quiet it down. Yeah, quiet. Really? I don't understand that. It's like at a certain point, you're an athlete. Of course, I don't like people to call my mom names from the crowd. Of course, I don't. But I also realize if you're going to make this much money and put yourself up there, once again, it goes back to, you know what you signed up for. If you're willing to do it and put it out there, this is kind of what comes with the territory. You know, I wouldn't, it doesn't mean you have to like it, but it's just the way it is. Well, that's an adult way to look at it. (laughs) But, you know, but again, fans don't see things that way. Like I said, that's the problem. They only, fans only care if you win or lose. They don't care about anything else. That's all they care about. Now, you know, we need them, of course. We love them. I, you know, and I love sports. But again, if you, but you know, they, they will overlook anything and they'll nitpick everything. Now, from going from, you go from doing sports movies to playing an agent, Arliss, to now doing a sports talk show. And now it's real life, it's not acting. How was that for you? Well, I, Easy had, tough. I, I did. I did a sports talk show for a while. I'm not doing it now, right now. Although we may pick up again. Um, it was well with, this, with the radio show was difficult because I wasn't on live. And when you are doing a radio show, a daily show, and you're not on live, it means you can't get phone calls and you can't. It was difficult. So that that was not successful. Um, but you know, if I'm not having to do anything that is like a podcast, I've done about two or three of them. That's fine. I love doing that. That's easy. Uh, and I love talking to people. And I love interviewing and, and really hearing other people's opinions. And, uh, again, the game within the game stuff, um, which I really like. You know, Looks like Philadelphia is going to win. Uh, they're, they're up 7-3 and then top of the ninth here. That's good. That's going to be tough because Atlanta, I mean, they beat the Mets. The, the way it came down with that, with that Mets series, 
the Mets and the and Atlanta at the end. Mets had the division. They had Degrom, Scherzer, Bassett lined up as well as well placed as you could be. All you have to do is is win a couple games to get we swept. To get won. to get swept with your three big boys, that I think had a huge after effect in that first round of the playoffs. And San Diego came in and kicked their butt and moved on. But don't think it was. I mean, the Mets went from okay, you got Degrom, Scherzer, Bassett. Now in Vegas, what would the line be that San Diego was, get, or they were going to get swept by the Atlanta Braves? Yeah, uh, million, million to one. All of a sudden, it happens. They go from we're going to have a buy in the first round to oh, we've got a play. To did you see what just happened to us? And then oh yeah, by the way, opening opening game, Scherzer gets rocked, one of our big guys, and then the rest. That's how quick it can turn in baseball, and the who's hot and who's not. It's, it's so now, to be to be fair, they still had a one game. They, if they won, they were advancing because they did win game two. But the, but the, where they really lost it was not there. Remember, the week before that Atlanta series, they got swept by the Cubs. Yep. That, and and I think somebody Alonzo made reference to that in, in an interview. I think. I mean, that's where you lost it. I mean, and and you know, and and also, I don't think the front office helped them at the trading deadline enough. Yeah. They, they they you know maybe there was a little hubris involved there. They didn't really get in quite enough. And by the way, you also are playing the defending world champions. You know, it's yep. not like you're playing you're playing the little sisters of the poor. And and they got a pretty good team. And uh, and, and I think both Scherzer and Degrom are not at their best. But that's like you said. That's who cares? I mean, it's like they should have. I, I you know I was t- talking about I was talking to somebody the other day about. Uh, which fascinating to me is going to be the Otani situation, because I mean I, nobody's ever seen anything like this. I watch Otani every day, and uh, nobody, you know, and I believe Aaron Judge is the MVP. I do believe winning makes a difference. I, I'm a big believer in that, um, and and especially when you're carrying the club like Aaron Judge carried the club. The uh, but with Otani, we, we've never seen anything like this before. Now he has said that he wants to go somewhere where he can win. He's also been made his preference for the West Coast, which means to me, he's going to wind up on the Dodgers. You know, or I said the only other team I could see him going to possibly is the Seattle Mariners. He didn't want to go there originally because of he didn't want to follow Ichiro. But Depoto tells me, you know, you know that may have changed a little bit. So now, however, I said okay, but what do the Angels do in the meantime? You've got you cannot trade the guy. I mean, what are you going to turn off? First of all, what are you going to get? Prospects? Who knows what prospects are? Prospects are suspects. You know, I said, so what are you going to do? You got the guy for one more year. I said, and now here's the problem with the Angels. Artie Moreno is selling the team. I said, is he going to make a, a, a commitment? I don't think he's going to make a huge commitment before this team is sold. So I said, but here's what I would do. If you want to keep... And also, if you trade Otani, you're going to lose an Asian fan base for the rest of your life. And that's the other thing. I said, so here's what you, here's one move I could see where it's possible Otani stays. You overspend for DeGrom. Because if suddenly you have DeGrom and Otani at the top of your rotation, you can compete. Because the other pitchers are not bad. You can, with Otani and DeGrom at the top of your rotation... That rotation can compete in the in the West. I said, but that's the only, and he might stay for that. He might stay. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what could be a scenario too. 
the whole judge thing, uh, as far as putting your money where your mouth is this year, betting on yourself, hitting 62 home runs, I tip my cap to that. That's about as well played as you could possibly do it. I don't know. You know, I've seen that. I, I know as a, as a player, when you put a certain amount of miles on your body, especially at a key position. If you play the middle infield, you play center field. Judge has been doing some center field. I know in the future they want to get him off his feet. That's going to play out in New York. I don't really see Judge leaving New York. I really don't. Unless something just comes out of the, you know, the woodwork, just a ridiculous uh, contract offer. But think of that scenario. If Judge were to leave, you with what he not only what he brings to the field statistically, but what he means to that organization, how he's handled himself, uh, PR one hundred and one, how Judge has gone about it this year as a as an ex player. Uh, once again, I'm very critical of how people handle themselves. He, I couldn't imagine handling it better through this season than Judge has handled it. He, he's you know he comes he's kind of the the guy after Jeter, you know, to carry that torch is the class of the organization. He's really done a, a, a really good job. That would be a big blow to lose him. That being said, if that happened, you've got to bring somebody of Otani's stature to New York to to appease that fan base. You're not going to just get away with letting Judge go and just bringing in a couple decent players. Uh, that could be a spot for Otani. But I the thing, I don't but, think so. I don't, he doesn't want to play in New York. But the thing I have, the thing that's interesting, or not interesting, the thing that's, uh, I don't know, it's it's kind of a quandary for me, is how do you pay Otani as a player, as a hitter? <laughs> I, I know how hard it is to play this game every day offensively and how much I have to prepare for that. This guy is doing that and getting his bullpens in and doing his band work as a pitcher, going to the mound every fifth day. It's beyond I mean, it's so fun for me to watch because I, I didn't think it was it was possible. Uh, it was possible at the highest level. But as a businessman, as an owner, as a GM for another team, how much longer can he keep this up? It's never been done before. So how do you structure that contract? Because if you just break it down offensively, okay, he's a top five player. Pitching-wise, he's a top five pitcher. <laughs> so you got to pay him at least $30 million a year for oh, both, no, right? No. So that's sixty. So what if he comes up to oh. you a year, a year from now and says, eh, you know what, I kind of just want to concentrate on hitting. Well, does that mean you take away the thirty, Or my elbow broke, but I'm going to keep pitching because I got to get that 30 on the other side of the contract. It's going to, they're going to have to get really, really tricky on how they do this contract. Cause this is, this is something we've never seen before. How do you negotiate with the two ways? How do you negotiate with a quarterback? That's also playing middle linebacker. Yeah. I don't think they're going to break it down quite that way. I think it's going to be one number because I, you know, if they, let's say it's $35 million a year, because even if, and I don't think, oh, by the way, Otani is not about the money. He's not all about money. He's proven that over and over again. You know, it's a different mentality where he's coming from and everything. Because if it was just about money, he would have gone anywhere for more money. Uh, I, and, and he doesn't want to play in the West Coast, on the East Coast. He hasn't done well. Also, he hasn't done well on the East Coast. That's something else, too. Um, and and he hasn't built up any cap. First of all, I, I'm with you. I don't see – what are the odds Judge leaves? I would say less than 5%. I mean, what? I mean, where would he go? First of all, who's going to pay him that much money? Well, it's going to be interesting to see the number because the number is going to be all right. 
if I'm a, if I'm sitting here playing devil's advocate, I'm going to go okay for what you did this year, and you're a free. I'm going to I'll pay you what trout what I pay trout. I think okay. you're that important to the New York Yankees. I'm going to pay you forty million a year, but mm-hmm. I also know the numbers, and I also know what the numbers say. The data says about wear and tear in your body and where you're going to be. You're going to be playing as a thirty one year old in the first year of your deal. Right. Okay, I remember when I was 31, 32, I was in contract talks, and I remember Bill Vivese from the Mariners telling me, Brett, statistics say at 35 you start to go downhill. I looked him in the eye as an angry 32-year-old and said, how dare you? I'm different than them. I train, my diet, and I'll tell you what, like clockwork. When I was 36 years old, I went to spring training, and I got old overnight. Yeah. I saw I saw it happen to Robbie Alomar. It yeah. happened to me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I didn't think it was going to happen to me. It happens to all of us, especially the 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 more physical of the position you play, the wear and tear, the cut and back and forth. Father time is a real thing. And I just don't know how much you can pay him. I mean, unless you want to do you're going to do an Albert Pujols type contract where we know you're going to be viable and a factor through age X. But the only way we can retain you is to pay you an additional three years. If it comes down to that. Right. So that's the only way. And that's exactly what it's going to be. Right. It's like, first of all, we're talking about the Yankees. So it's not like you're talking about, you know, the Minnesota Twins. So the Yankees, remember, the Yankees gave, you know, uh, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury like $150 million. I don't think he played a game for them. The, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of guys that they give you know, They give him Cole. So if the Yankees, if they give him, if they, by the way, I know for uh, one of the stories, and your brother will, will, uh, will uh, confirm this. When they were in negotiations this year, and uh, the they said, we're going to make you the second highest paid player behind Trout. He, he responded, Mike Trout can't carry my job. And that came from him, not the agent. And your brother will confirm that, I guarantee you. I got <laughs> I, I, wow, that's, that's betting on yourself, but come on. You know, it's like Mike Trout. Now, this year he did. By the way, Trout still hit 40 home runs in 120 games. Trout, Trout's a special guy. I mean, it's tough to hit that swing top to bottom. I've watched it a ton. It's so fundamentally correct and he and he repeats it he repeats it so well he's so good such a good player robert wool this has been a pleasure this has been a lot of fun talking the game uh what a great career from stand-up to to big screen to arliss to uh, i i enjoy i enjoy all your all your work and uh it was an honor having you on today thank you very much and what we do each and every boon podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to Dan Levy, the voice of the podcast. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.